You know, she's the wellness influencer of witches. She's an absolute hack, yeah. <laughs> it's like she started off with good intentions, but now she's just, like, peddling just bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Eat Club, a special bonus episode of Pratt Chat, a Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Once a year, we record a bonus episode with topics chosen by our Eek tier subscribers. This year, the topics are, well, I couldn't really come up with a pun for this one, actually, which is like a first for me because they're so broad. There's just like a big cross section of them. So I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Uh, But if you want to choose a topic for next year, you can become a subscriber too. And we'll tell you how that works at the end of the episode. Liz, this is exciting. This is our second year doing this. And I love I love the kind of stuff we get for these podcasts. Yeah, and I had to do like some some proper research and I have learned new things from like reading up before doing some of the answers. Hopefully I do them justice, but um I got a real energy of I don't know if you've seen that post, it's a tweet where someone's like, All right, buckle in guys, let me tell you an essay about a thing that I've just learned myself. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I have mostly avoided that. But also, I mean, look, it's probably worth saying it's been a busy time here in Australia. As we record this, it is, in fact, election day mm. for our 2022 election. Um, I've been to vote this morning, Liz. Did you vote today or did you vote early? Um, I have a postal vote, so early. Oh, fancy, mm. fancy. That means I don't get a well, democracy sausage. Yeah. Um, for those listening who are not here in Australia, the democracy sausage is a tradition that has emerged over the last decade or two where uh, at polling places, which are usually set up in primary schools and churches and places that are available on a Saturday when we're voting, um, there's often a sausage sizzle where they barbecue sausages and sell them to you in a bun, which is a traditional Australian fundraising activity. Very traditional in Australian. Very, very, yes, very dibbler enterprising. Uh, But usually they're to raise money for the school or organisation who is hosting the polling place. Mm. Uh, and I, I had one this morning. Um, it was nice. I think this is only my second election as a vegetarian. So it was amazing to go to a polling place and they had vegan sausages and they were actually pretty good, mm. particularly with onions on them. I only have ever had one democracy sausage because <laughs> I just have this special knack of turning up at a polling place that doesn't have a sausage sizzle. Oh, well, so you need to get onto Democracy Sausage, the website and or social media platform. They just got a blue tick, apparently. They've been made official by Twitter. And when I tweeted, because it was my partner's first, not her first election, um, she's voted several times before, but uh, this was the first time she's had Democracy Sausage. So, we took a selfie and I tweeted it. And they tweeted us to say, that looks great. Which polling place are you at? they want the information. And I had happened to take a photo of the price list. Mm. So, I passed that on. They also had a cake stall, looked really good. Also had a, a coffee cart and they had, for some reason, potted plants for sale. Hmm. Can I just uh, show up and do the sausage part? And I mean, not you can. Vote? Yeah. Yeah, you totally can. And you- I'm voting separately. Much shorter queue for that hmm. as well. Um, but if you go to um, Democracy Sausage, on the internet. I mean, by the time this comes out, you'll have missed it because this this episode comes out, of course, for the glorious 25th of May. 
which is both an important date uh, for the revolution in the Discworld, as we covered recently in our episode about Nightwatch. But also, it's Tal Day, Liz. I don't know if we talked about this last year. <laughs> I, I, it rings a bell. It's the day that celebrates Douglas Adams and the day that celebrates Terry Pratchett. I love that people solved the problem. They were worried, like, well, do I wear the lilac or do I carry a towel? And someone's like, well, let's just make lilac towels. <laughs> so, uh, great. I still have not got one. I'm, I should get one. Um, I should get a lilac towel. That's a great idea. And it can say, don't panic. It's the 25th of <laughs> glorious 25th of May or don't, don't panic. Eat a boiled egg. I don't know. There's something actually that's a, that could be a good idea for a sticker or a t-shirt mm. or something. I think I'll, I'll work on that. I'll workshop that. I absolutely want one. Yeah. We, that does remind me, we have had a, a couple of times we've come up with t-shirt ideas and we've asked the listeners if they want them, Liz. Mm. And a few people have said yes. I don't, we haven't done it yet, but I think that's because it's, I think maybe six people have said yes. Mm. <laughs> so, we're not sure that it's going to be economically feasible. Is that including us, though? Yeah, that's including us. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, we could still do it. But even so, I reckon six might be too many for me to hand embroider. But well, I'm just bit- trying. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, okay. I did that once for a Christmas stocking. It took so long. What did you embroider on? I, just the, the child's name. Oh, wow. Yeah, on the top of it. That's cute, though. Come on. Yeah, well, I hope she still has it I'm, or enjoyed it for a little while anyway. That's the point, isn't it? Because we, I'm just trying to think now what the T-shirt designs were. One was the Sausage in a Bunnings T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was another one. Yeah, I can't remember. Don't remember. Mm. If you remember, listener, and you would like us to make these T-shirts, let us know. That'd be great. Look, we should probably get into these topics lists. We got, we don't have forever. Uh, we should, we should do it. We just want to acknowledge that we, we heard from most of our subscribers at the Eek tier. So we, we have, if you're not sure what's going on when we say all these words, we offer an optional subscription to the main podcast, Pratt Chat. That's just to support us making the show and primarily the money that is given to us through that subscription helps us make the show. It makes it affordable for us to pay for all the hosting. It means we can pay ourselves a little bit for our time making the show. Uh, and it means that we can buy cool stuff to talk about on the show. I've been seriously considering buying some very early, very expensive Terry Pratchett books for us to talk about. That might be possible, but only because of your support. The main one I want is the the German one that has the Maggie Noodles ads in it. <laughs> I need to see you know, that with my own eyes. I feel like that can't be that expensive, like the whole point. Although maybe they are because- they were very cheaply produced, so they might not have lasted. Mm-hmm. But I do. I want to see that. Yeah, I just want to see see that, and while eating imagine noodles, probably because <laughs> I mean it's working on me. Like it's the the ad is working. So well done, whoever came yes. up with that. And thank you. But also, no. Thank you to listener Sven, who we will hear a little bit about this episode, but we won't have a question from him. But thank you, Sven, for sending in your great podcast to us, which we featured on our subscriber only bonus podcast, the Oot Club which is where this podcast gets its name, we, because he, he sent a whole thing about the German translations of Terry Pratchett's work and told us about the Maggi Noodle sense, which that was amazing. But yes, this is for everyone. We, we record this and release it publicly, but um, we have different tiers of uh, subscription. There's only like four of them, just so that if people want to give a bit more money, we've got a way that sort of systematizes that and also allows us to give back a little bit of something to them. And so if you subscribe to the top tier, which is the Eek tier. It's like $25 a month. Um, you get all the stuff that everyone else gets, but also you get to choose a topic for us to talk about once a year. So these topics were chosen by those subscribers um, who we will name and thank as we go along. 
most of them, Liz, this year, they had a real brainstorm. They sent us a mm. whole bunch of topics, but we just picked one from each of you. And what we'll do is we'll hang on to the other ones. We'll stick them in the pool of stuff that we talk about in the Oot Club, which is the subscriber-only podcast. So, we will still use those questions at some point. It was not a waste of your time to come up with them. No, they're so uh, we're good just do one. as well. Like I, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how. Ben shortlisted the questions, and I don't know how he did it because they're all so good. Oh, look, having little time helps. Ruthless. <laughs> yeah, helps you be ruthless. No ruthless. Uh, but also here. I did – I tried to think about, you know, which one can we talk about for like a good 15 minutes mm. and make it interesting? Um, and, and there was at least one, in fact, there was, there was more than one from everybody who sent multiple questions, but yeah. And, and, you know, some, some of them also are questions that have our listeners put in a bit of detail mm. thinking about what they wanted to say and what they wanted us to talk about. Um, and just actually, before we get into this, the other thing I just want to say is that if you are a subscriber, but you're not an Eek tier subscriber, please, you can still send us questions like these ones, preferably shorter ones that don't need as much depth, uh, for the Oot Club. We can uh, answer them there. And if you're not a subscriber, um, you don't have to be a subscriber, by the way. Like, it, we're very, very grateful for your support if you are, but you don't have to. But if you're not, we are also coming up in October doing an episode which will be entirely listener questions. And that's a chance for you to ask questions that are more generally Pratchett-based, um, to go back and ask a question about a book that you missed asking a question about when we covered it on the podcast. Um, or to ask questions that are like sort of Pratchett adjacent, still Pratchett related. We want them to be interesting to our audience. But, you know, if you like recommend some other books or what's this author like or, you know, stuff like that. We last did this in our 30th episode. You can go back and find that episode. Um, it's titled Looking Widdishins. And we said we'd do it again in another 30 episodes. So we are. So if you've got questions that you've wanted to ask us that don't really fit into the monthly we're discussing a specific book format send them in. I have a lot of opinions about specific things about um, comic book movies, which we were talking about before this and not recording. So, um, <laughs> if you have, yeah. if you want to hear more about how Wolverine bends his wrists, um, that would be <laughs> something I have probably a solid 40 minutes on. So That's great. Yeah. Uh, what I would recommend is please do listen to episode 30 before you send questions in for episode 60, because mm. we want to try and make sure we don't have any doubling up. There's probably a couple of questions that we might re-answer in the hindsight of having done the podcast for another year and a half, uh, two and a half years, actually. Oof. Wow. It's a long time. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, but if you, yeah, if you're not sure, um, if you're not sure, just send it in anyway. And, uh, if we're like, look, we kind of already answered that one. Well, great. You still get an answer. <laughs> anyway, um, we should get into it. Mm. Uh, unless there's anything else you want to say before we get cracking Liz. Yes, um, I would like to say that I've been saying Eek Club, but in my mind, it's more like a surprise shock shriek, like the sort of when someone suddenly appears. Um, <laughs> but I'm too shy to say it like that, so um, I just wanted to say that. Okay, do you yeah. want me to say it like that? Oh, yes, because you're less shy than me and also um, a skilled actor, so. <laughs> well, oh no, now you've raised the bar. Um, well, it's sort of more like a sort of a <gasps> club. <laughs> Is that, is that yes. kind of how you thought? But um, a little bit more high-pitched, but that's because I was imagining me doing it. So, that, okay. the vibe is exactly right. I mean, look, if it happened to me in real life, if I really got surprised, I think <laughs> I would probably go higher-pitched too. All right. Well, I know where you live, so um, I'll bring my recording device. <laughs> <laughs> Just pop up from behind the couch. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sure chaos will assist you. And, and actually, I think they would both mm -hmm. they would both do that. All right. Let's, uh, 
Let's get into it. Um, and as, as per the tradition we established last year, I will announce each one with the question asker's name because we want to celebrate mm. the people who are supporting us and sending in these questions. So here we go. Part one, Graham. This is a great question. Liz, do you want to ask the short version of this question and yeah. we'll get into the nitty gritty of it? I'm All excited right. about this one. So Graham's question is, what was good, fun and enjoyable about The Watch? So that being the TV series. Yeah. And look, we, we covered this on the podcast and Graham and I, just full, <laughs> I won't go into the details, but it's possible we got a little bit hung up on the negative of the show. Uh, we got quite critical. And I mean, that's, that's a danger of being a creator, right? It's hard to watch things and disengage watch your things. critical faculties. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. And go, Oh, this is great without also going, Oh, why did they do that? Oh, I understand the structure of these things. So if you want to hear those things, you can go back and listen to our episode about the watch. It's only a few episodes ago. And and I think part of the thing is like it's longer than a book because there's multiple episodes and because we try to do it chronologically, you end up focused on the first few episodes, which I'd argue are not as good as the later ones. So the balance of criticism isn't as evenly spread as it would be if we'd spent like a longer time talking through giving each episode the same amount of time. And looking yeah. over the whole thing as a whole. Yeah. Which we do want to do. Mm. Um, and uh, if you're an Oot Club uh, subscriber, watch out for an announcement about that in the near future. Mm. We're not quite ready to say anything publicly, but hang hang out for that. But, yeah, so let's get into it. First of all, I had a lot of fun watching this show. And even though these characters might not have been the version of them in my head, like they were a cool, fun version of the characters. The further away I get from it, the more the negatives drop away and just the things that I liked and enjoyed and the strong images stick with me. So, like, this mm. morning I was thinking back over and I was like, what didn't I like about it? And I struggled to remember. And I think <laughs> what what I think now is that I enjoy it as its own thing, as an interpretation, but not as a... Like, it, it's in its own world and I enjoy it as its own thing. And... Mm. What I really liked, um, and I think our, one of our guests at the time, Patrick, led me this way, was Vimes, which surprised yeah. me because um, Patrick gave me a different perspective on how the character was done because the actor was giving it his all, and I did really enjoy his interpretation both while watching it and, and now. Like, it's not the Vimes mm. from my mind, but I think it is a really good good version of it. Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a comedy show, right, and that, that has a very different energy to a full on drama. I mean, they've got a, there's a dramatic plot going on in the background, but I think, uh, I think they, they really brought this comic energy and Richard Dormer, who plays, uh, Vimes just, yeah, he really just goes for it. And, and yes, he's more based on the Vimes from the, from Guards Guards, who is, you know, still an alcoholic, who is still kind of washed up and, you know, still a cop, but, and, and they really, but I, you know, it's kind of like, it's like when they make a Sherlock Holmes, right? You, you often see creators going, well, you know, we could make Sherlock Holmes exactly like in the books, or we could choose a few traits that we like of Sherlock Holmes and really emphasize those. And you see things like in the BBC Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch, they really emphasize his kind of misanthropy and just being a general jerk. His flattened affect. Yes, that's true. That's also in there. And then in elementary, they do a bit of that, but they also just go, let's really examine 
the fact that he's clearly addicted to drugs. Let's go with that angle. And they kind of over time soften the he's a bit of a jerk angle. And there's this really touching friendship between him and Joan Watson that I love. And that's why it's my favorite version, you know. And I also really like how over that series, elementary specifically, they tease out how important it is to him to be the smartest man in the room, like how integral to his own well-being that is. much more self-aware about it. Mm. Mm. And then in the same way in The Watch, you know, they've really chosen to go with Vimes. They've pushed that he's a washed-up drunk angle. They've pushed the he's seen the city just go down the drain and seen the importance of the wash just go nowhere and he just doesn't care anymore, which is an element of the character that exists in Guards, Guards. Um, and they've given him somewhere to go. Like, uh, you know, by the end of the season, you can kind of imagine him. I mean, he's not he's not at where Vimes is at the end of Guards, Guards in the book, I don't think. But he's he's ready to go somewhere else. Like, he's got a bit of his dignity back. He's still quite cartoonish, but, you know, that's fine. It's, uh, it's a comedy TV show. I think it says a lot also that I did want to see more, like, when the series ended. Mm-hmm. Not just because it ends on a cliffhanger, but I did want to see more of these characters. So that, yeah. I think, speaks to something as well. Yeah, totally. Totally. I also just really like, I really love just the whole attitude of the show. Like, it just comes at you. Just from the start when they have the, like, somewhere in a secondhand set of dimensions. I love that. And the big block text in the color. And then the, you know, the sort of the weird, and it's not, it's not quite punk. Like, they talk a lot about punk when they talk about the show, but it's not, it's not quite that. It's got a bit of that attitude, but it's more, it's more just sort of this sort of rock counterculture that's a bit more generic than that. But it's still, you know, it's colorful. It's in your face. Um, and it wears what it wants to say on its sleeve. Like, it's not subtle. And I think, you know, some people probably ping it for that, but I, I think that not everything has to be subtle. Mm. Like, sometimes you can just stand up and say, you know what? You shouldn't treat people differently because blah, blah, blah. Like, you just say it. And that's fine. And that's good. Some people need to hear that. And it's affirming and it's, and it's fun and it's, yeah. I still feel like it does have a feel that someone has come in and changed a few things around the edges to its detriment. Mm. But I think mm. there's like a good core there. And I do still think the first few episodes were, if good and bad is a, like, it's a spectrum, it falls slightly more, like it falls quite a lot more on the bad side. But again, having said that, and we did focus the episode more on the first few episodes because of the timing issue, as we mentioned, mm. one of my favorite shows a while ago was The 100. I always tell people to, the first three episodes are garbage you have to push through those to enjoy the rest of it (laughs) unfortunately then the last few seasons were garbage but there's a golden period in the middle so that's okay so yeah yeah, you can have basically what i'm saying is you can be off for a few episodes to find your feet it's just a bit more noticeable in a show that is shorter like it's not a 20 episode season no it's like only eight episodes it's not very many anyway Mm. yeah but there's some great stuff and some of the later episodes are great like when they on the journey through the desert to get rid of this magic sword uh, that's a great episode. Like, it looks great. It's got lots of weird stuff happening. And I love the new stuff that they invent for the show. And I think that's where a lot of its strengths lay. Like, the weird idea that the wizards are not- They're not really like Discworld wizards at all, but they're, they're sort of like wizards who uh, have invented this kind of magical technology by stealing ideas of what technology is from round world, which means they have all these inventions that look like stuff from our world, but clearly are just a bit wrong, which I I really love. That was so much fun. And that episode, like, they also made a nice use of flashbacks just to fill in some backstory for some of the characters without taking too much time. 
And I thought that was a nice thing. You know, the, the magical desert makes you relive your worst memories of your life. And it affects a couple of the characters worse than others. And yeah, I thought that was cool. I also like the Miami Vice music. Um, as yeah. he's walking, like that, that's a great shot. And it's just, <laughs> that's the bit I think about the most when I'm thinking back on the series. I've listened to that a lot since then, actually. It's on my um, regular rotation of things that I listen to. And that's and then just, he, like, just yeah. falls down the sand dude. <laughs> great stuff. Also, as we've said in previous episodes, possibly in the Pyramids episode, mm-hmm. I, like, I've always wanted to see more Assassin's Guild, like more inside the Assassin's Guild. And this show did give us a version of that, which I really appreciate. Yeah, and, the, and you know, again, it's not the one in the books, but that's fine. Like, make your own thing, right? And the Assassin's Guild we see in this is is very funny. I'd watch a whole show of just that, honestly. Oh, yeah. If they wanted crazy. to do a spin-off I mean, of just the Assassin's Guild, I feel like that could really have legs. With all their fancy masks and their stupid assassin names and, oh, yeah, great. Just great stuff. That was a lot of fun. Mm. And actually, that whole episode where they infiltrate it, the whole bit where they dress up as a band <laughs> and get become members of the Musicians Guild because they've got a backdoor into the Assassin's Guild, just great. And that, the way that they talk to each other, like, you know, Cheery's little, like, pep pep talk before they go in. Song about gold. Song about gold. And the way that she and Carrot have that little moment where they're like, I can't believe they don't know this song. <laughs> like- just little stuff like that. And I think a lot of the little nods, a lot of the Easter eggs and references in the show are very, very weird and very different out of context, but they clearly show the people making this have an appreciation for and love for the Discworld. And it was just nice to see, even when it was just minor stuff, you know, hmm. like Mr. Pin and Mr. Chillip's names appearing on a poster or, uh, you know, the, the one man, one vote posters for the patrician and stuff like that. That was cool. The thing I would like to pull out of our episode on it, though, I would like, if there is more, if there is a spin-off, I would love Fury to write it. Because <laughs> I think that'd be great. It'd be amazing. I'll have to see where it goes next. Graham did also want us to get onto, though, and I know this is something you know a lot about, this or have thought a lot about, Ooh. the challenges of adapting books to the screen, because it's a very different medium. Mm. Oh, it's really tricky, isn't it? Like, it's something I've written a lot about, mm. and- I mean, I guess the first thing to talk about is when you're adapting something by a living author, do you get them involved and how Mm. tricky is that? And sometimes it works out great and sometimes it works out terribly. So I think the strongest example, well, not strongest example, the one that springs to mind, first of all, is Hunger Games, because I think the author wrote the first film or was heavily involved with the script. And it is like, I love all the Hunger Games movies. I have watched them lots of times. I went to the triple, the quadruple screening one time they're great um but the first one is not as good because it's clinging too hard to the books as is understandable Mm. it's a thing that you created you not everyone will be able to like the different skill sets so it's Mm. hard to step away and make a different version cut away things that you think are integral and present it in for a new audience so i know it's this is press my button of like a huge topic that I have a lot to say. Yeah. I'm like, where do I go next? What's the most important thing to say? It's tricky. I also think that not everything should be adapted. There's, there's this thing mm-hmm. that I think people feel that a book is only truly successful if someone options it for a film or a TV series. And that's not always the case because there are books that sure you can make them that way, but you lose something. And like sometimes the best experience of it is the one you create in your mind. Then again, 
adaptations of books sometimes create something new. You can appreciate the original work in a different way and it augments the experience. Mm. How to figure out which ones should be adapted, who should do it, and how to do it, very tricky line to walk. And I think that's why it's gotten wrong so many times. But when it works out, it's great. It's Feels like a kind of a cop out answer because I've got so much to say. I don't know like which bits to say. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is going to come out. Like if we do, I don't know why I was being so coy about it before. If we do do another podcast where we like break this down episode by episode, which is what we suggested we might do, I think a lot of this is going to come out. It's hard for us to sum all this up in a short piece. The thing that surprised me, um, and I think I've mentioned it before, is that Dinah and Jones the author, her work has not been adapted for screen very much. Like there is Howl's Moving Castle, which was adapted by Studio Ghibli. And I love the book and I love the film, but they feel very loosely related. Mm. Like it doesn't feel like an adaptation of the book. It feels like a film that pulls beautiful elements out of the book and creates its own thing. So Mm. I kind of think of them as separate, even though they share a lot. Because like a lot of her work would make great television or film and i don't know mm. if sometimes it's because when you're working with fantasy or something you've got to commit a lot of money a lot of budget a lot of time and it's, it's hard expensive. to get the look right whereas if you're adapting a gritty crime novel for example you just got to i mean i'm simplifying like people's hard work but there's less elements to work with there you've got to get the dialogue right and find the right yeah. locations but you don't have to create a world yeah i mean this is something for the watch you know is that one of the whole reasons for that magical Blade Runner kind of vibe is that's a lot cheaper to do when filming on location in parts of South Africa where you can find places that you can make look like that with a bit of set dressing rather than having to create whole sets of Ankh-Morpork style uh, Regency era. I don't know what era it would be. It wouldn't be Regency, would it? Since post-medieval, it's more kind of Victorian era by the time you get to the later books. Anyway, of that kind of earlier historical London kind of landscape. Like that that's doing historical stuff is expensive mm. and difficult. Um whereas if you can do something that's fantastical but builds on something more modern, that's a lot cheaper. Mm. So I think that's that's a and and I think it you know the the budget constraints of this stuff have to be you have no budget when you're writing a novel. You can describe whatever you want. You can have as many characters as you like. You can have characters who look like whatever you want. You don't have to pay for special effects or set building or makeup or pay thousands of actors. Like, you can do whatever you like. And Uh, and then you come to television and standard drama television, like your kitchen sink domestic drama in Australia, costs $1 million per hour to make. That's normal scripted drama. We're not talking science fiction or anything that has additional overheads. It's hugely, hugely expensive. And- that money's got to come from somewhere <laughs> um, and you got to spend it. And so if there's any way you can alter the thing and, and make it a bit more reasonably, then you do it. You know, like that's a practical consideration that is important. And, and I think it's easy to go, but the art or the, the fiction should come first. You're like, but it can't. It has to work in conjunction with the medium and the constraints of the medium and the constraints of the budget. And that's constraints make art better. And I've always thought, and you, the constraints are so different on television or film than they are on on literature. Well, it's why you can't crowdfund it. And back in the day, this is like now I don't want it, but I used to really want this. This is why you can't crowdfund more Firefly or Serenity because yeah. Yeah. the the figures would be astronomical. Like you could try for it, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you uh, can. You, 
yeah, you, you can't crowdfund like a, a full on television series. You can crowdfund a web series where things are expected to be a bit cheaper and the episodes can be short. Um, you can crowdfund a feature film up to a certain point. That's been done a few times. Um, but even then, you know, you're not crowdfunding a fantasy film. Like that's just not going to happen unless it's a short film. I mean, Trollbridge was uh, crowdfunded, but also it was crowdfunded and then it took like 15, 20 years to make because you just couldn't employ enough people because you didn't have enough money to do it. And and so many people put in time into that unpaid. I mean, it's also a fan production. They weren't allowed to make it in a commercial manner. So, all the money that they raised had to go into practical costs. They couldn't pay anyone. So, that's another thing that we've got to think about. It's a huge- it's difficult, right? Like, even if you are- George Harrison with your Beatles money combined with Monty Python <laughs> during their heyday. Because the yeah. story goes that um, when they when George Harrison read the script for Life of Brian, he went, I'd like to see this film, I will fund you, and gave them yes. the money. Um, which is amazing, <laughs> and I aspire to have that level of commitment to supporting projects one day. But mm. um, even then, like, the coconuts for horses, very funny, but that was for budget reasons. They just yeah, went so into we can't it. afford actual horses. Yeah. But because they're able to lean into that because that's their humorous. We are conflating two films here. So just to set the record straight, George Harrison, through his company Handmade Films, did indeed fund the life of Brian, mortgaging his house to buy what Eric Idle described as the most expensive cinema ticket of all time. But the film with the coconuts instead of horses is the earlier Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which was not produced by Handmade Films. In 2021, though, Eric Idle revealed that the earlier film was funded largely by other pop stars, including the bands Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, as well as three record companies, including the one that published the Pythons albums. Though the flip side of this, I don't know if you've read the season eight Buffy comics after season seven. No, I, of Buffy I haven't. Yeah, so Buffy ended season seven. It had its complete arc, like it finished on its own terms. And I was like, great, very sad. All of that. Um, and then they released comics. And I think what happened was Joss Whedon's like, I don't have a budget anymore. I can do anything I want. Anything goes. And so they had flying submarines, ridiculous, like things. I was like, this is not what the show was. You've changed the, the level mm. completely. And it was really bad. Apparently they got better after that, but I stopped reading them because they were bad. They were very bad. Yeah. I think also like the adaptation is fraught, but for anything that's already popular. Mm. Like, and I, and I think we've seen this in the Discworld fandom, right? Like, a lot of people are not that big a fan of Hogfather or The Color of Magic or even Going Postal, even though I like two out of three and eventually we'll watch the other one of those three things. And those are very, very faithful to the source material. But some people didn't like them because they felt a bit flat. I'm like, well, what, you know, what, what do you want? I mean, and they're a little bit cheap, but I think they did, the, you know, the mob did an amazing job with the budget that they had. I think they look great. What I want is, what's in my brain exactly and faithfully mm. represented on the screen, but so does everyone else. And we all have different brains. So um, mm. what we need to develop is a virtual reality system where you hook into the adaptation and it plays it like <laughs> according to your own brain algorithm. <laughs> like they've got to have amazing. a basic plot and people in like Andy Circus green golem suits acting <laughs> it all out. Running um, around. In a green screen. <laughs> but then when your brain gets hooked in, you fill in all the gaps with what you want. Yeah. I mean, but you can do that on your own. Without a VR machine, like just close your eyes and imagine. In my house and imagine things. This is, I mean, one of my favorite things that, that this always makes me think of is that as a Doctor Who fan growing up in the eighties and nineties, like I had the reverse thing. Where a show came into your house and imagined you. 
No, no, but they, I had the reverse of the adaptation thing, right? Because a lot of the things I couldn't watch the original, they weren't available on VHS or in those days. Um, they certainly weren't out on DVD. They were never doing box sets of seasons like they do now. And so if you wanted to relive the old Doctor Who, other than the ones that you could see broadcast on television, you had to get the books. They'd been novelized. So they adapted them from television into a book and the books are amazing. They'd have these illustrations and also they had no effects budget because you would read the book and imagine the most amazing version of the thing. And then you would finally years later get to see it. And it's like, you know, it's Doctor Who, BBC budget, special effects. And I I don't have a problem with those, but it's not the same as you saw in your head. And it was kind of, it was like going the other way. You're like, oh, (laughs) right. It's like, oh. It's strange, isn't it? Like I've had a few experiences where I have read scripts before a film was made to make little edits and things, and then then I'll go watch the film, and that I've had this experience a few months or years later. I won't remember what literally happened in the film or what <laughs> I imagined happening in the film from when I read the script because you've played it in your mind before, and it's different to reading a book and then seeing an adaptation, I think, because it's yeah. always intended to be a film. So you play it like a film in your mind. So, yeah, mm. you don't remember what scenes made it in and which ones didn't or, like, what bit to embellish so that's yeah i say you i mean me everyone's (laughs) brain is different i mean it's one of the reasons i always tell my script writing students you must do a table read you've got to read the script out loud because even just doing that will give you a very different idea of what the script sounds like and how it works than if you're just reading it off the page to yourself um you've got to read it out loud and preferably with other people um yeah uh, look, I, I just want to throw a couple more things. There are a couple of other things that, you, Graham, you had uh, for us to talk about. I think we're going to – we probably run out the clock on this one. But I just want to throw a couple of other things I really liked about the adaptation in there. I thought the dragon was really cool. I don't know why they chose that design. Like, there's lots of reasons. They could have done a more traditional dragon. But I really liked that they went with something that was weirder, this sort of dragon-shaped black cloud of smoke like with these uh, glowing eyes and the flame coming out, like just, just cool. I want to put that in my Dungeons and Dragons game. That's how, <laughs> that's how good that was. Uh, and I probably will at mm. some point. We'll get to these if we do this other podcast because I, ha- I, I literally made like 10 pages of notes for every episode. Yeah, and we have a good name them. for the new podcast, so like the spin-off podcast, so we have to do it. But we yeah. do. Yeah. Look, and we, I hope we'll do it. I hope we'll do it. Mm. Um, who knows when or how? I mean, we have <laughs> struggle sometimes to get this done every month because it's a lot of work, but that's okay. Anyway, thank you, Graham, for that question. I hope that this has been enjoyable. I mean, there's so many other little things. Good boy, the little dra- He's so mm. cute. He's a little, little, little thorny lizard with wings. He's I so cute. He's like a little gecko. Shows that create mythical creatures that are adorable and I want to have them live in my house and I can't. <laughs> yeah. It's rude. Yeah. Mm. So cute. And also, I like the look of all the characters. If I think, like, my reaction would have been very different had I seen this as a teenager as well. I'm not saying, like, that's not, like, a maturity thing. So, the mm. things that I was interested in as a teen. I mean, I was into Pirates of the Caribbean and I loved the costumes in that. And I was obsessed mm. with Captain Jack Sparrow's coat. Yeah. To the point where I had an assignment in history to make like a magazine from a period in history with a friend and we did it set in that era just so that I could do a whole page dedicated to like that coat. 
Um, yeah. And I have similar feelings about Vimes' coat. So oh, we, yeah. Yeah. That's, I oh, want yeah. one from me now. I, I don't know why I said as a teenager. I still me right now. Yeah. Yeah. I want one. And I mean, I, I once had, I went to a friend's wedding uh, and they were, you know, the instruction was dress as fancy as you want. And I took that as an excuse to go to a costume maker and get them to make me a frock coat in the style of the one that Robert Downey Jr. wears oh in the God. Sherlock Holmes movie. And it was great. I would never regretted it. I don't even wear it that often. Um, you should. But I would love that Vimes coat. That would be great. Actually, we, Liz, we, if we ever go to a live event, if that ever feels like a thing we could do again, we should totally cosplay. Mm. I've been thinking it. after all these years of being at home, it'd be good to have a I have nowhere else to wear this party, which is something <laughs> I did when I first moved <laughs> to Melbourne. A friend invited me to one of those and it was great because I think we all have some weird things in our wardrobe that you're like, I love this, but like, when am I going to wear it? Yeah. So there needs to be a yeah, few more parties like that. Yeah. Well, look, we should move on though. We've set a bad precedent talking about this oh, first yeah. question this long because we do not have time to do that for everyone. But, you know, we try and talk about each question for the length of time we think it needs. Uh, but thank you so much, Graham, for that one. And we will move on. Part two, Frank. All right. So Frank's question is, is Vimes a cynic, a stoic or an Epicurean? What a great question. Yeah, I saw it. I was like, oh, I'm going to have to do some research. Having just ordered some food from one of my favorite market stalls, which is called the Epicurean, and now I know why. <laughs> <laughs> I love that when Frank sent this question in, um, he did summon up the uh, the three schools uh, by quoting a famous phrase. I'm not sure what the origin of this is. I'll have to look this up for the show notes. But cynicism, stoicism, and Epicureanism can be summed up as you can't trust any bugger further than you could throw him. There's nothing you can do about it. So let's have a drink, <laughs> which I think is pretty good. Um, you look this up, Liz. What's your understanding of cynicism? So it's where you think that there's no good motives. In, like, I'm not remembering. It's like I'm getting school flashbacks to being like asked a question in class. Um, I think it's mm. where, where you think poorly of people. Like you don't think they're good on the inside and that they they can't be changed. Like there's, there's badness that's unmovable. That's yeah, a, not a great definition, but kind of yeah. You just <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there's definitely a certain element of that in Vimes' personality. I mean, you see it in his suspiciousness. Like, mm. he just accepts that there are people in the world who do bad things and you got to do- but, but you know what? But he doesn't accept that you can't do anything about them. Mm. So, I feel it's interesting because, like, he's got a mix of all three of these things, but I don't think that's his whole character. They certainly are in the mix. Because stoicism is, is quite different, right? Stoicism is that idea that you must just accept things- as they are and change yourself. I think that's right, isn't it? Like you, you just sort of, but how would, how would you describe it? I, I feel like, you know, I, I have this understanding. It's one of those things I feel like I've understood and I've read a bit about. And now that I come to explain it, I'm not doing great. Yeah. I think <laughs> it was that you can't change things in others. I didn't get to the, your own ones, but I think there's like an element of suffering to it as well. So you just accept that mm. you can't change things. Yeah. So it's very, very logical. You just sort of don't react hugely to external stimuli. Like you don't, you don't get massively happy or, um, and the only thing that's worth doing is being good, like doing the right thing. Mm. Um, which is, I mean, there's an element of that, but also Vimes enjoys a cigar and he does get happy. Mm. I mean, I think the way we discussed this a lot in our guards, guards episode, Pratchett 7A way back, way back. It seems like so long ago because it was, uh, it was like four years ago. The way that his and Sybil's relationship starts and sort of edges towards becoming a thing, he never gets 
like he doesn't get very excited about it. In fact, the whole time, the way he writes about it, and we talked about this in the episode, it's a bit weird, that he just sort of feels like, oh, this relationship's coming at me. I don't know what to do about it and doesn't really show any external excitement mm. about it, which is a bit weird. It is a bit weird. I don't know if that's stoicism, though. Maybe that's just toxic masculinity. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so I had like a definition of stoicism that I can't find. Like that, I had this morning. It's like it just went mm. away because I felt like I had a better grasp on it then. Um, my question for this was: Do they have to be discreet, or can there be overlap? Because it feels like he doesn't fall neatly into any of them, but has an element of all of them, which is, I think, what you were saying. Yeah, well, I think you know the the that quote that I am um, that Frank sent through. That's a combination of all three. I don't think he can be a true cynic because he does see good in people. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to form relationships. There's people that he trusts implicitly. Mm. Um, He's quite cynical in Guards, Guards. Like, I was rereading a little bit of it when I was researching recently. And when I think it's uh, Colin swears in the librarian as a sort of a a citizen officer mm. or whatever, he's like, fine, why not? Sure, that's a good idea. Like, he's very, like... Uh, this is all nuts. Like, I guess we'll just deal with it. So there's an element of cynicism, but then also an element of stoicism in that he's like, okay. Like, he's not like, it's all the worst and just like doesn't do anything. He's like, this, this is the worst, but we're going to do it anyway. Like, there's a bit of both, I think, in that first book. Well, it's like he's like 60% of some of them, mm. but not fully. Which means, what like, about Epic- Epicure- yeah, he loves a cigar and a drink, and that's like he enjoys it. And, and mm. um, as as Frank mentioned, there's the whole thing about his boots and true happiness from the thin soles. Mm, yeah. So he does yeah. derive pleasure. I think of all of them, he is most of all Epicurean, which surprised <laughs> me because, like, it's not what I would have thought, but, like, he's not neatly any of them. And I don't know if you can call yourself any of them if you don't, like, based on the philosophy, I don't know if you're allowed to pick and choose, like, and have a taster plate mm. of all of the things. There are other characters who, like the patrician kind of very much embodies a combination of cynicism and, and stoicism, I think. Even in just the last book we read, The Last Hero, he's the one who's like, okay, so the spaceship is too heavy because the librarian is on board. Can they just throw him out? And they're like, no, he'll die. And like, okay. He says, besides, they don't have enough fuel to get back on course. He's like, could they chop up the librarian and feed him to the dragons? It's written as him seriously suggesting these things where he's he's sort of like, Okay, well, look, I'm not going to get sentimentally attached to people because you have to sacrifice people for the higher good. And, you know, that's a very, feels to me, a very, both quite cynical, but also quite stoic. I feel like that perhaps falls more into a discussion of what kind of moral code he follows. Like, is mm. he utilitarian? Is he, like, a, like, is he paternalistic? Like, what, I think, like, that's more what that situation was. And I do mm. think he's a utilitarian with paternalistic elements, but yeah, mm. I, it's funny because you mentioned veterinary because he's also an Epicurean because it always, like, the main thing I think about when I think about him is that bit where I can't even remember what book it is where he's reading sheet music because he wants to enjoy it without humans getting in the way and ruining it. I think that's in Feet of Clay. Yeah, that's, oh, that's great. I do love that. Mm. Um, look, to get back to Vimes, I think, the thing that most defines him, certainly at the point of the books where we're reading now, for me, often is his anger. Like, he's got this sort of righteous anger that he recognises is too much, which is not a sto- Like, he, he tries to keep it under control, which I guess you could argue is a sort of trait of stoic philosophy. But he feels it and he uses- he fuels his action 
with it. Like, he's so angry about the injustices in the world that he gets out there every day and does it. Like, when Casa is killing people, he's like, I've got to be the guy to take that guy down. Like, I'm putting my- and, he, and he's also very, like, this is my responsibility. I mean, he's also- treats it very personally, he feels like he's got to do it. Like, it shouldn't be someone else's job. Um, and so, he's always putting himself in danger. So, I feel like it's- I don't, I don't know that that level of anger really fits in with any of those three philosophies very much. Maybe the cynicism, I don't know. It's made me want to read more on this, but it's a good framework through which to try and divide someone's- character into i think to see where they fall across the three mm. or more because like it is it seems like something that there'd be more elements to never studied philosophy um mm. so i don't know you know i said yeah i said it a little bit but it, it was more metaphysics and that sort of thing rather than this sort of philosophy but i think i mean I, we should say one of the, the reason that uh frank has chosen these three is not just necessarily he thinks that that's the three that are most important but that he found a very interesting article which we'll link to in our notes about where pratchett's work comes from philosophically and they argue that pratchett is these three things but i actually also think and one of the reasons why vimes is so angry is that pratchett writes from a place of anger and you see i mean you see it especially in his later work but it's always there there's always an element of that. Like it comes through, I mean, even in equal rights, it comes through, through Granny Weatherwax. With her, it's an ice cold anger. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't escalate to violence. She's much more cold and calculating about what she does. And Vimes has moments like that too. But she's also furious about the injustice in the world and when people, as she puts it, treat people as things. And that's, I mean, you know, that's such a integral part of his writing and where it comes from. I feel like that for me, I don't know if there's a school of philosophy that covers that, which is the idea that you can take that anger and funnel it into doing something. Like maybe that is part of the idea of stoicism. You know, you take your emotional response and you funnel it into practical mm. action. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. But I, I love this question. Thank you, Frank. Um, mm. I don't know that we've got, we, we haven't had a great deal of time to research for this episode. It's all come together a bit last minute, but this is fascinating. And I want to, I'm going to read, go and mm. read that article in more detail. Maybe we'll have more to say about that on a later episode of the club. We'll see how we go. Part three, Kath and Eddie. All right, so this question is, what was Granny and Ridcully's relationship like and why didn't it continue? Oh, I, I love a good, let's just, this is a good speculative one. Like this is, there's little hints of this in the books. There's not a lot of concrete detail, so we can just get into it. For the record, what little we do know of Granny and Ridcully's relationship is revealed in Lords and Ladies, where it's strongly hinted that Mustram proposed to Granny on the bridge outside Lanka, and she turned him down. This event seems to have happened before either of them ever went down the path of magic, but we're pretty much ignoring that to let our imaginations run wild for this one. Sorry, this one absolutely set my brain on fire when I read it, because I was like, oh, there's so many different mm. incarnations, but now I have my own headcanon. <laughs> oh, so, really? Sort of. Okay. Oh, well, I want to hear it. You Lay it on me, Liz. What do you reckon? So, I think that, because they're both very reserved, serious people, and like, obviously, Rid Cully mm. has humour to him, and so does Granny, but they're both outwardly terrifying. Like, that's their thing. Like, they move <laughs> through their worlds, and they are scary to those around them, because they command so much authority, and they're so self-assured. I have no idea how they would have met. I, it might be in the books, but I don't... But Well, they, but Rid Cully's from the Ram Tops. I think they just lived near each other. 
I think they would have had like basically one of those Jane Austen era <laughs> looks across a room, but intensely fiery love of my life kind of relationships, like where mm-hmm. when it's just them and they they have beautiful romantic poetry to say to one another, just something that could have filled a whole series of those kind of novels. Like I think it would have been that kind of relationship because that's kind of the protagonist of a lot of those books, like fiercely independent, eyes on the future, I know who I am, I don't need no partner kind of people who suddenly find their person, the person who like is the only one who sort of understands them in a weird society and also will support them in that way. Um, mm. And I just feel like it would have been one of those kind of situations and I can't see it being any other way. Like, mm. And when neither of them would have ever considered anyone else, that was it for them. Right. Why didn't it continue? Because they both understood each other so well and they're in a society and a time or an era where neither of them to achieve their full goals in life could have a partner. Like it mm. would stop them from getting them where they wanted to go. Like you can't be a married wizard and head of the university. Similarly, like Granny, like she could marry. Absolutely. Like Nanny did and things, but to command the kind of fear to be the kind of leader she is, to be the kind of witch she is, she no distractions. She can't be having with that. So mm. I think it's one of those tragic star-crossed situations where they would have known from the beginning that it wouldn't have worked out. They would have still had this novel-filling period of time where they decided whether it's worth throwing their futures away, but ultimately neither of them could have done that to one another. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like that. They both know what they want. We can't do that and be together, so that's more important to us. Because that would also destroy the other person in the way in which they love them as well. So you'd be with Mm. the shell of the person, but they wouldn't be them. Yeah. Do you think – this is something – the most interesting part of of the whole mystery of their relationship to me – is actually not what it was originally like. Because I, I love your headcanon. I think this this fits to me. Although I do just want to quickly ask, do you see it as being more OG Jane Austen style or more sort of modern Bridgerton kind of style relationship? OG. Yeah, okay. That makes sense to me. Yeah. So um, lots of looks, lots of serious conversations, lots of pretty words and lots of genuine feelings, but not um, anything Not else. like shagging in the rain kind of no, stuff. No, as in no. classic, like real Pride and Prejudice stuff. Mm. Um, with a hint of like the Kate Blanchett Elizabeth the first movie where she got to give up her her heart to be a proper leader. I'm also just thinking of like what's the kind of working class rule equivalent of that, and I think it's like Little Women kind of style, right? Like they're not land, like they do they are landowners, they have a farm, but they're not rich. Although they kind of are like watching. I've never read the book. I, I confess I, I'm most familiar with film versions of Little Women and particularly the more recent one, which I really liked. That did have a, very much a more Jane Austen feel, but I think it's it's important also to remember like these are not, they're not high society people. You know, they're not, they're not moneyed. They're from a poor rural farming area. I mean, not poor in the modern sense of poor, but just sort of, that's what they do. Like it's a farming community. They have kings and nobles and stuff, but they're not, they just get on with it. Mm. But what I was alluding to, though, is the thing that I'm interested in is there's that period where Rid Cully goes back to the Ramtops in between graduating from the university and coming back and becoming Arch-Chancellor. And I've always wondered, surely, if there was any time where he was going to reconnect with Granny Weatherwax, it would have been then. And it's not really mentioned in Lords and Ladies. Like, they clearly haven't seen each other since their youths. But it's not clear why he wouldn't have done that, unless he was there, like, and he missed- 
Like, maybe he was there the eight years that Lanka skipped forward in time. And it's not really clear what it would have been like living next door to it at that time. Like, whether you would have just gone, hey, what? Where have you been? <laughs> it's not clear. No, I feel like with my headcanon being true, like, even if he was back, they would have had a polite nodding relationship because anything more than that um, would have been too difficult because mm. it, it's all or nothing. Might have seen each other in the store or something and just not spoken. <laughs> I think they would have had deliberate avoiding of one another and if they mm. couldn't help it, there would have been a polite acknowledgement from across the room but no conversations, no nothing beyond a polite word because otherwise it would have been all too difficult. Mm. See, now I'm thinking about Ridcully's family and the fact that, you know, one of them becomes a high up in the university and the other one becomes a high up in the clergy. Maybe they're not, maybe they are a bit upper class. Like, we don't really find out that much else about his family. Mm. We know they're from the country. So, they might not have mixed in the same circles even. So, they could have avoided each other that whole time quite easily. Yeah. It's a whole extra dimension to maybe why it didn't work out too. I reckon that the force of the, both of their personalities, if they wanted it to, they could have, that, that wouldn't have been the problem. It was their own personal goals. Hmm. So I'm just like, this is how it is. This is the narrative. No, I'm I'm totally cool with this. Like, I really, I don't think I have anything to add. Uh, that was great. Yeah. Star-crossed soulmates that had to make a practical decision. Mm. It does also, I mean, you were talking about how, you know, witches can get married, but it seems like it's very rare. Mm. Like, the only witch we ever meet, like, that's not true. There's only two witches we meet who are married. So, there's, there's Nanny Og and there's uh, Mrs... Arwig, uh, sorry, Mrs. Ewig. We don't, we don't indulge her nonsense here. They're the only ones. And Mrs. Ewig, notably, is married to a retired wizard mm. who has a lot of gold. That's a whole fishy situation. Like, I'm sure he's a, yeah, he's, he's, he's a nefarious, like, ne'er do well. We never find out much about him, I don't think either. But yeah, I, so, so I think it's, it is like, I think there's no rule against it, but you, you have to be the a special kind of witch to really embrace it. Either mm. especially great kind of witch, like the greatest witch of all time, Nanny Og, um, I will brook no arguments, or the worst witch, <laughs> um, who you don't, it's not even clear why she's a witch or why anyone suffers her to continue being one. Uh, oh, that was, that was perhaps unfortunate language. Sorry, everyone. Mm. Uh, but yes, I don't know why they let her be a witch anymore, Mrs. Ewig, because she's just the worst, the worst, not interested in anything that witchcraft is really about. But she probably, like, donates a lot of money to whatever cause the, you know, all the politics. I'm sure there's politics. I'm wondering off the topic here a little bit, but do you think Mrs. Ewig started out as a, as a, as a good witch? Like, she was good at it, I mean. And then she has been not led astray. Like, I don't think anyone leads any witch anywhere. Like, they go where they want. But she's sort of gone off on this path of, no, we're going to make witchcraft responsible and cool and worth money and just ruining everything that it stands for? I think she probably st always strove for excellence, realised she couldn't achieve that on her own merit and skill, and therefore her personality branched off in the way that she got power by the path she followed. So that's in another way of achieving excellence to her, but not the way she would have liked. So I don't know if that mm. means she was a good witch to begin with. I feel like she was probably competent to mediocre, as in like you mean good or bad, but I mean she's probably a competent witch who wanted to be the best, realized she couldn't, and then just went for being powerful. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's like a new, I, I like how it's kind of like it's a new phenomenon. Like in the past, she probably would have gone down the cackling route. You yeah. Know, <laughs> become a new Black Alice style, yes. like luring children into ovens kind of witch. But instead, it's more modern day. So she's married some ex-wizard with money mm. <laughs> and written a book. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, she's the wellness influencer of witches. She's an absolute hack. Yeah. <laughs> it's like she started off with good intentions, but now she's just like peddling just bullshit mm-hmm. <laughs> to make money. And it's bad advice and it's bad for people and it's bad for the industries that she interacts with. Yeah, it's just gross. Mm, she harms her cause. Okay. Anyway, we got a bit off topic there, but that was a great question. Mm. And I also just want to shout out to Kath and Eddie, who I know from our email exchange were uh, discussing these questions whilst drinking wine at a winery. So, I feel Nanny Og would definitely approve of this method of coming up with questions. So, good on you. Thank you for that. Just imagine- Sorry, I know you just wrapped that up very nicely, but just imagine Nanny Og at a winery, like, for the first time. Just- I don't. She never. I don't think she ever gets to visit one of the books from memory. But yeah, that would be great. I can just imagine her like taking her boots and stockings off and getting in there, <laughs> squishing up the grapes. Ah, <laughs> uh, so eating the good. grapes. I mean, like, why do these taste bad? Why aren't I drunk yet? No, but she understands yeah. how booze is made. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she would. She wouldn't know that stop her from getting a few free grapes in. <laughs> oh, I love her so much. That's a wonderful question. Part four. Steph. All right, so the question from Steph is, what pop culture would you have liked to see referenced in Discworld? Oh, that's such a tough oh. one to answer. Like, everything? Everything. <laughs> it's like everything. the thing where you see uh, um, Yoda in E.T. before Star Wars is out, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, the sort of further premise of this question was, like, obviously there was stuff that came along after Pratchett's death that he couldn't have read and couldn't have used to influence it, but I think... There's also just stuff that he didn't didn't occur to him, or he can't put everything in there. This is a great question, mm. a really good question. What else do you reckon? I mean, I always I enjoy a crossover between things, but I don't know mm. if I definitely want to see that. And this. that's not really pop culture reference. That's more just like all of my favorite characters meeting up in a book because I like it, which is not the same. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of it is is more about what kind of things would have come into the culture of Ankh Morpork. Mm. I think that's where it is. Like, I would love to have seen the- I think we've touched on this before, actually, on the podcast, maybe briefly, but, you know, the clacks evolve into a system where people could do social media kind of stuff. And mm. what did Terry think of that? I mean, because he had a love for technology, but I think he also had a healthy dose of cynicism about it. And there's um, this did the rounds big time when Mark Burroughs' biography was coming out. He did a tweet about- a old interview he found with Terry Pratchett interviewing uh, Bill Gates for, I think it was GQ magazine, and asking him, you know, but if the internet takes off and anyone can put information on there, what's how do you sort out what's real from what's nonsense? And Bill Gates was very like, oh, there'll be methods of doing that. And Terry Pratchett was like, will there? You know, and uh, so I think he had a healthy dose of cynicism early on, even though he loved talking to fans and getting involved. And I would love to have seen what he'd do. With that, that's that's less pop culture and more sort of society and culture. I would have loved to see possibly even a whole book on how the Discord handles reality television. Oh, yep. Because like, yep. they don't have television, actually, because like, they briefly have film, as, but television never mm. really becomes a thing. So, like, maybe reality theatre. So, like, I don't know how that would work, but, um, like, yeah. Terry Pratchett's take on, you know, the culture of it, taking normal people or putting them in an extreme circumstance or, or just their normal one day in lives and having other people sort of turn that into celebrity culture. That would have been really fascinating to see how he handled that and how he translated it to Discworld. Yeah, that could be cool. Keeping up with the Dibblers. <laughs> <laughs> I wake up at dibblers. five in the morning and I get my sausage in a bun. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's only one though. Like I, he doesn't seem to have a family. I yeah, mean, there's but all he the other diddlers. Hire like people to play his family to like change his <laughs> image because reality television, not reality. Yes. So just seeing like how he would try and portray himself in this thing. No, oh, that's great. That is great. You know, you were talking about Jane Austen in the last question. I I feel like uh, there's not a lot of that. Like there's not a lot of those sort of romance. Think like I, I feel like he could have done a really good skewering of that. Mm. And there's like this little, little elements of you can Cassinander. kind of get a hint of the direction. Yeah, Cassandra. But you can see, I mean, I think the closest he comes to that sort of self awareness of the story that you're you're in when it involves romance is kind of stuff like Kanina and Nigel, where there's a little bit of that, but also they just sort of end up together because they're the two people. Um, although they're a bit more, I was rereading a little bit of that recently too, and they're a bit more cynical about it than I remembered. But then there's, you know, like Militia and Keith in The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents, who kind of don't really end up together, which I liked a lot. Like, it's ended up being, being friends, really, it seems. But her sort of understanding of the, tr- I can see a sort of Jane Austen version of that. There's like the Bennett sisters equivalent, but Mm. they're all sort of like, oh, I see what's supposed to happen here, but I'm not into it. Or I see what's supposed to happen. Don't you understand? This is how the story is meant to go. Like anything where there's a story that people can kind of be self-aware about really Mm. lends itself to his stuff. So, that could have been interesting. Mm. He didn't like to write about high society people that much, though. So, I don't know if he would have gone for that. Modern-wise, I think like he would have had something interesting to say about- sort of modern superhero fiction, that could have come in somewhere. Like maybe there's people start circulating novels about fanciful heroes that have nothing to do with the gods and the gods don't like it. Like it can kind of, some of it is harder to fit into the context of the Discworld than other things. Mm. But I think like there's possibly something in there. Like you could have at least had some references in there. I'm just trying to think through how it would work because like I I reckon there's something there that would have been very interesting. I'm just trying to see whether it would be like suddenly they come up with this like really trumped up version of Cohen the Barbarian and he tr- he sort of stomps in being like, this is not what I'm like. Why are you making up stories? Or would he love it and lean into it? Because it's mm. that vers- is it the rock version of Hercules where <laughs> the whole thing is he's not as good mm. as the stories say and it goes yeah. through the labors of Hercules showing how they faked it. So, I mean, that has already been done, but it could be fun. Mm. That's cool. It's interesting to me that he was quite in tune with fan culture like being a big fan himself of of sci-fi and nerdery and also being very in touch with his own fans. But I think he never really, like the closest he comes to kind of really touching on that is characters like Nigel the Destroyer and Stanley with his pin collecting. And they're kind of very broad parodies. They always remind me of the Wiz Kid, who's a character in a 1980s Doctor Who story who clearly is a stand-in for all the really nerdy Doctor Who fans. <laughs> um, but I feel like he could have gone more with that and maybe like modern- and this is something we didn't touch on from a previous question, but sort of modern fandom where there's elements of it that are quite toxic and awful. Like, I feel like that's something that could have crept in somewhere, maybe in a sort of a, you know, maybe in like another elucidated brethren kind of group. Hmm. Like rogue pin fans who are outraged that everyone's collecting stamps now. <laughs> <laughs> and they just try to sabotage the stamp collecting move. Like, that could have been a thing. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, something like that. I'm just thinking through, like, what what pop culture things there are. My brain just keeps going, Tarzos, Tamagotchis. And I'm like, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, what else is more? I mean. Planking. Can you imagine, like, Vimes' reaction to, like, everyone 
suddenly like plank because it suddenly becomes dangerous and yeah. the watch has to deal with it. Uh, so I think I sustain a book on that, but like a little reference could be funny. <laughs> That's good. I reckon like, again, you know, to riff on something we already mentioned, Bridgerton could have gone in there. Like the sort of like the much racier version of a traditional novel. Like there's already hints of that in some of the stuff in Nanny Og's cookbook and, uh, oh, so they and adapt obviously Nanny the Og's snacks. cookbook for the stage. <laughs> Someone's adapted it and everyone's like, mm, mm. Oh, yes. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Oh, there's so many, so many. I would have liked to have seen some other Doctor Who references. Like there's the main ones seem to be every now and then he, he describes something being bigger on the inside. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty obvious one, but it's also a cool geographical thing to do. Uh, like that happens in Carpe Jugulum. But there's one I've forgotten which book it's in. I mentioned it when we covered it, but I think he does refer to something as a, having a wheezing groaning sound, which is. Uh, the traditional way in the Doctor Who novels, they always describe the sound of the TARDIS. He wasn't a big Doctor Who fan, so I don't imagine he'd really go for it. Uh, I would have loved to see some more specific video game stuff mm. because we know, like, he's a massive fan of, like, the Elder Scrolls, uh, played a lot of Oblivion, worked on some mods. I think he played some Skyrim as well. So I would have liked to see some more specific references to that. Like, the, the specific video game references are much older stuff. You know, I think the newest one that I see is like, there's a reference to Doom. There's a reference to like um, Tomb Raider. Mm. It would be great to see some references to the stuff that he he actually played a bit more. I mean, I think he played Tomb Raider, but um, yeah, mm. something like that. I mean, there's pro- probably there is one, and I just haven't seen it. it. Would be in one of the later books, so maybe maybe it'll prop up. We'll see. Basically, anything I can point to and be like, I recognize that from our world. I'm just always delighted <laughs> to find it, like no matter what it is. Yeah, they're so great. And even just like the little ones where it's like, you know, the title of something or the all the different names. band names. Yeah, that's great. And just like, ah, oh, like when I learned where Bugger at Millennium Hand and Shrimp came from, and I was like, of course, it, of course. How did I not know? Because he like mashed up the Chinese takeaway menu and the lyrics from Particle Man by They Might Be Giants and had a computer program generate some pseudo random sentences. Of course. Like, I'm like, yeah. Could have done that some more. He should have done that with dialogue from Oblivion <laughs> or Skyrim. Like, if just one guard somewhere had said something about having taken an arrow to the knee, I would have been like, yes. But anyway, I think that's great. I think that's heaps. I don't mm-hmm. know. Are there any other ones? Basically, any, like, as I said, anything in there I would love to see. I mean, I think I said a little bit of this in the previous question, but I would very much enjoy seeing a skewering of influencer culture because I think that would be very mm. funny. That kind of comes off reality TV, I think, because it's the spin-off of that. Yeah, that would have been cool. Yeah, and like you said, like social media in there a bit more, but I just really would be interested to see an Ankh-Morpork take of it. Like, can you imagine <laughs> at the Mended Drum someone doing like the early days of Instagram thing where they're trying to get like a nice sort of <laughs> flat lay of their beer and there's just some like a sword in the background and someone like sprawled out but you're trying to get a nice picture of your food and all the hashtags and things so great and also where would you send it like would you send it over the clacks or would you like get an imp to paint it and just like stick it up somewhere like how does it work it's yeah just a lot there that i think would be fun yeah that's cool oh i just thought of one i think he'd do something interesting like just a reference to like maybe the disc reviving some of their really old plays that were really popular and instead of doing like the old play again and just putting it on again making new stuff based on it and everyone's like 
why just do the old, just do the old <laughs> one as like a commentary on like all the new Star Wars and Star Trek stuff that's being made now. Mm. Actually, and just like Star Trek stuff, like there's not. We just read the one where people go into space. There's not actually a heap of Star Trek references in it. Mm. Um, I, he probably wasn't a big fan of Star Trek either. He didn't seem to be that into that sort of more traditional sci-fi. At least not in a big way. I've said before, like I haven't watched any except for the odd episode that's been on TV, um, because mm. it's so overwhelming. There's so much of it. You don't know where to start. I'm, I'm sure there's lists. Just watch Discovery, Liz. All right. Discovery's fun. I think you'd dig Discovery. See, I know in my heart that I would love it, and so that I would have to sit down and watch like hundreds of hours of it if I start. Well, there's only four seasons of it, so it's not that much no, yet. But I wouldn't be able to stop it. Like, you, I'm a completionist, <laughs> so like I know if I start on Star Trek, I'll have to watch okay, all, right. all of it. Oh, okay. Well, don't then. Don't. Yeah. Watch, ba- watch Babylon 5. It said there's only five seasons of that, and then there's no more. Fine. Oh, and, and there's half a season of Crusade, but uh, and they're going to reboot it soon, possibly. We'll see. Mm. Anyway, sorry, I've been rewatching it uh, slowly in fits and starts. I'm like, how much of my life has been taken up watching Stargate? So <laughs> yes, <laughs> I still well, a lot of it, right? Of it, so, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've nearly finished all of the original, and I'm about halfway through Atlantis, I think. And Did I you enjoy the, the Watergate episode? Because that's my favorite bad. Ep- like, it's not a I bad know, episode. It's the title. You've this I know because it sticks in my. It's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny. Like, Imagine if they're still making it. They could have used all the other gates. <laughs> Elon Gate. <laughs> it's just a really <laughs> long world. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Well, look, anyway, thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. New subscriber since our last episode last year. Uh, wonderful to have you on board. And thank you for such a fun question. Part five, Jess and Ellie. So this question is, what moments from the series hit you differently this time because of a personal experience? Mm. This this came from a personal place for Ellie, who figured out that she was trans, and that really changed her experience for her of things that Shiri says in in the books. Ellie, that you you said that when you've decided to shout out your identity to the world, it's nice to find out you can do it in a whisper, which you found sort of a bit profound and important. And I, I think, yeah, that's a Wow. Do we have anything like that, though, is the question, when we go back and read it again? I, I went, after I read this question, I went and stood at my bookshelf just looking at all of my Discord books to try and think back over the experiences of reading them because there's always moments where I, I read something differently because I'm older or because I've, because I've had different life experience in a slightly different way or I understand more references, but it's not to the degree that this question is asking for the most part um i mean i've got i didn't know where to go with this question to be honest because like i do like to keep things quite light but um i had two sort of things that struck me when i was standing there looking at them first of all the truth um the whole book hits me in a different way because i first read it before i took up work as a writer before i'd worked Mm. in journalism in newsrooms etc i mean that sounds like i've done a lot more than i have but the whole book um, is framed differently for me because of having seen things from another side. It's not so much personal experience. It's just like life work experience. I wasn't sure whether to say this for this one because because it's um I don't feel like I have as much of a claim to it as many as other people do. But rereading Nightwatch, um, the whole revolution element of it where people are fighting for something they truly believe in. And I know that the message of it is that it's complicated. People are pulled in different directions. The revolution itself is not clear cut and that's part of the whole thing it did hit me in a different way 
this time, especially reading it so recently, after all of the things that have happened in Hong Kong over the last mm. few years, which I've been following very closely. Um, no, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast previously because I was born there. Um, have a strong connection. Identity is a complicated thing. I was there just before the protest in 2019 broke out. I followed them from afar. I considered going back and I didn't. And I still feel complicated about that. Now I went to ones in Australia, which is not the same. And the fallouts from that are still being felt now. So I think when I went back and I reread Nightwatch and I saw, you know, words from the inside of something where people are willing to sacrifice their futures, sacrifice their lives, it hits different because it's not abstract like it's Mm -hmm. not something i have personally experienced from being in the situation but i think your mindset changes when you understand the situation that people are willing to give up things for like i'm not sure if i'm phrasing that well but yeah i think it's um before that you understood philosophically why someone might but when it's something that's personal Um, or cause that you truly believe in and you can put yourself in the mindset quite literally, it feels different. Yeah. But I I wouldn't like to, for a moment, portray myself as being in that situation. Um, I've never been in the danger that the people who took part in the 2019-2020 protests put themselves in and are still in Um, Mm. because I have the privilege of experiencing it from afar. I care about the same issues, but... I haven't put myself on the line the same way they have. It's, um, so yeah, that, that hits different. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, like, it's interesting because the, the first one that came to mind wasn't from the Discworld series at all. It was rereading Only You Can Save Mankind and realizing how much I was Johnny at the same time. Like how this sort of abstract idea of a war happening somewhere else was affecting me as a young boy not really getting it so that that one was kind of just from personal reflection but i think a lot of the vimes ones particularly the ones we've been reading recently when i first read them i was still a teenager mostly until sort of the ones we're coming up to next i would have been in maybe my early 20s not quite late teens anyway i hadn't yet had the sort of experiences i had as a young adult where i sort of needed to confront or or i i kind of ran into the effects of toxic masculine culture on myself and like how I reacted to things and how I behaved and coming back and reading them now I look at Vimes's anger in particular but also some of the other things that happen in the books like there's a few moments with Carrot and there's a few other things where I read it and I go I just accepted that as normal when I read this and this is not quite I don't know that this is quite what you're asking Jess and Ellie but I when I read them now, I'm like, ooh, I know where that's coming from. And I think I pref- I like the bits where Vimes addresses that in himself and is like, I am angry and I could hurt someone. This is I've got to recognize that's not the appropriate response and do something else. And I have much more of a personal experience of having lived that uh, and thought about it and tried to deal with it in my life with greater and lesser success, it must be said. But- um, yeah, that feels quite different. I think for me, I look. You know, I think that I, I don't. I don't want to apologize for that getting a bit heavy, but I think this is the kind of question where it is important to reflect on your life. And sometimes it's just things that happen, and sometimes they're good things, and it makes you see something in a different light. Sometimes you know you're dealing with things that are not so great, and it makes you reflect on things in a different way. 
you know, when I look back at some of the discussions we've had about some of the books, I, I've been feeling that the whole time, I think, <laughs> that we've been reading through them. And it's really interesting to revisit something, any, any kind of culture that you first encountered in your youth as an adult and reevaluate mm. it in that context based on the life that you've lived in between. And yes, but I think that's the big one for me. Mm. Yeah. That was an amazing question, mm. by the way. Um, hopefully we did it justice. Again, we haven't had a great deal of, of prep time, but thank you so much for that question. And the other ones that you sent in. Uh, Jess Nelly also did a great brainstorm. We're going to take all your other questions. We'll stick them in the pool. We'll hopefully get to them at an oot club. But thank you so much. Part six, car. All right, so this is a very timely one. Um, if yeah. democracy came to Ankh-Morpork, what political parties would we see? Oh, my God. We would see so many political parties. <laughs> Dibbler, oh. I, I keep bringing Dibbler up, but, like, Dibbler would have his own. He'd probably have this several. Is, I, I, think, I think we need to put this in Australian context. We yeah. mentioned at the top of the show, we, we it's election day here, so we're very – we're on to this. And Carl, I know, thank you, Carl, by the way, for participating in that democracy. You've been working with the AEC at a polling booth today. Thank you for doing that. Mm. Um, but in Australia, uh, we have preferential voting. If you don't know what that means, um, it means that you don't just vote for one person and then if that person gets the most votes, they win. We put our order of preferences for our candidates on a ballot paper. So if there's nine of them, as there are in my electorate, you number them from one to nine. And if the person that you first voted doesn't get more than half of the votes, then um, the person uh, with the lowest number of votes, they get eliminated from the race. They're like, well, you can't win. So let's take all of your votes. And who did you those people want as their second best preference? We're going to give their votes to those people. And then you add those to the count and you keep doing that until somebody gets over 50 percent which means they have a majority. That was like the best explanation I've heard. You must be some kind of communicator by profession. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot. Every time there's an election, I'd say, and look, I'll link to, there's a great cartoon about this uh, by a local uh, cartoonist about Ken the Election Koala and uh, Brian the Voting Dingo. It's great, great stuff uh, that explains this. I often use that to share it, but that's, that's the it in a nutshell. But that's for our lower house. In the upper house, <laughs> the Senate, both at a state and federal level. Similarly to other countries, we have representation where each state gets the same number of senators. That means you, you're electing more than one person. And so you vote for, again, multiple candidates or multiple parties. And because more than one person can get in, they don't need 50% of the vote. They only need, I think it's 17.4% of the vote. And again, you preference them. It's much more complicated. I won't go into the details, but they reallocate your votes again until they get enough people over that quota using the preferences to elect people who they know a lot of people basically want to be in that position. And that means because you need a much smaller quota of the vote to win, a small party can possibly get a candidate into the Senate. And so lots of people create a party and register it. And our ballot papers for the Senate, we'll have to share a photograph of one. We'll find one online. I didn't take one today, but um, they're huge. I've got my blank postal one if you, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, we get a photo of that. Um, the, they're huge. I mean, this year they were quite of, kind of, they've condensed a bit. They've revised the rules a bit. So there's not as many parties, but I remember voting must have been like 2013 or something like that. Uh, where I was away from home, I was in Brisbane and I had to vote in a, in a special, um, polling place for people who were away from home, not in their home electorate. And I think in those days you could either number just the parties. 
which means you put them above the line. So, there's a line and above that, there's a box for each party. And then below the party name, there's the list of individual candidates. And you can put numbers above the line, which means you just vote for the parties. Or you can number below the line, which means you can number specific people, which is useful if you want to vote for like one independent who's in this group of, you know, miscellaneous candidates. And if you want to put the terrible people really low. Really last, yeah. And it used to be that if you voted below the line, you had to number every box. And I used to do that. And I remember in this election, uh, however many years ago it was, there were 240 candidates for the Senate (laughs) in Victoria, something like that. It was over 200. And it took me ages, not just to fill it out, but on the way to the ballot box, like before I even got there, to research and figure out. And it was, it was like, okay, so the ones I want to put first, well, there's like 20, 20, maybe 40 I can figure out that I want to put first that I'm happy to give a vote to that I kind of want to vote in. And then there's like, okay, there's- like 40 that I really hate, but then I have to figure out which ones I hate the most so that they can go at the bottom of the list. And then there's the ones in the middle that you're like, I don't really care, but I've got to preference them. So I need to think about it. And it's hard. They've revised it now. So you don't have to vote for everybody. You just have to put um, either vote for six parties above the line or 12 individuals below the line as a minimum. You can vote for more. I did. I voted for like, I think 20 or 30. Oh, there's so many deceptive names. As well. Oh, yeah. The names are the worst. So, we have all these political parties, heaps and heaps of them. So, this is the context. This is, as an Australian, like, we're used to seeing all these stupid political parties that might actually get voted. And I, in the UK, it's parties. a little bit similar. Yeah. Single issue parties. There's a potted history or, or understanding of how the Australian political process works. In general, our political, uh, our electoral system, not our political system, that's got plenty of problems, but our electoral system is actually pretty great. Also worth mentioning that, and I, I don't know the specifics of how this works, but you can make a lot of money from votes without being elected. Like there are people who, like Pauline Hanson has become like a millionaire apparently off just like the votes she's gotten. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's ways to make money from running, even if you don't do amazingly. This is pretty much true. Since 1984, the Australian government provides funds to political parties to be spent on election campaigns in order to lessen the influence of private and corporate donations on our elections. You don't have to win the election, you just have to get at least 4% of the primary vote, which presumably shows you are a serious political party. But it's only since 2019 that laws have required parties to provide evidence of how they spend those funds and to prevent parties from being given more public money than they actually spent on an election. Anyway, we're getting, getting wildly off the topic here. No, but I mentioned it specifically because I feel like Dibbler oh. would come in oh. to specifically- The Dibbler party. Yeah, to try mm-hmm. and, and people mm-hmm. like Moist from the old days, perhaps, um, <laughs> would come in trying to make the money. Like They, they wouldn't I want see. to get into politics. They would um, want to specifically rot the system and make some mad stacks of cash. Would it be a, like Richard Pryor and Brewster's Millions- style business i don't know what that is so i'm gonna so it's a it's a comedy film with richard pryor and the the premise of the film is that he finds out he has this is just like some regular guy and he finds out he had some rich old uncle and he was his only living relative and he's gonna inherit like you know some hundred billion dollars or some crazy amount of money um actually it's probably a lot less than that because the film's quite old so it didn't need to be that high Anyway, he's given a certain amount of the money and in secret, like he watches this film that's made by the uncle as part of the will. He tells like a story of like his dad shut him in a cupboard and made him smoke a whole box of cigars so he wouldn't smoke too much. So he's like, so I'm going to give you like $20 million or whatever it is and you have to spend it all. 
in a month. You have to have none of it left so that you are so sick of spending money frivolously that when you get my actual inheritance, you will understand what to do with it. But you cannot tell anyone that's what you're doing or you don't get any of it. I love that. Anyway, so that's the premise. And one of the things he does to spend all his money is he realizes it's very expensive to run an election campaign. So he runs for, I think it's like mayor of New York. And he runs an election campaign where he just tells people to put none of the above. <laughs> like, I don't want anyone to win. And I can imagine Moist or Dibbler doing that, like particularly Moist using all his charisma, being like, you don't want any of these people. <laughs> just vote for nobody. And then him winning and having to deal with it would be like the second two thirds of the book. And I could like, whether it's Moist or Dibbler, those would be two very different, but great books. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should say, I just want to acknowledge, like, we've explained the Australian context, but in the UK, they do get crazy political parties as well who just pop up in random electorates. Like, there's that guy who always runs for, like, Lord Mayor of London or, like, one of the London electorates and he wears a bucket on his head. I can't remember what his name is. I have to look it up. But they get crazy candidates too. I just wanted to acknowledge that. <laughs> anyway, uh, back to the question. The question. Uh, I think we would see a lot. I think people would turn out in droves to start their own party, a lot of single-issue parties. Um, Do you think each guild would run a party? Oh, absolutely, because they wouldn't want another guild to get more power. Yeah, that's true. And they'd expect all their members to vote along those lines. If democracy came to Ankh-Morpork, where would veterinary be in all this? Like, would he just be Oh, gone? well, now, Carl had a theory for this. Like, he doesn't think it would happen unless there was, as he put it, uh, an et to drum knot kind of situation. <laughs> so, he thinks this would only happen if the patrician died- and then the idea of democracy has taken hold in Ankh-Morpork. Okay, so we don't have him to, like, smooth it out and make it work really nicely. He's not involved. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. It's important to the hypothetical. I mean, headcanon-wise, maybe if the patrician, like, sort of leaves it up to Moist what to do when he was retiring or dying or or just leaving, I can see Moist being someone, like, we've already mentioned him, but I can see him being someone who would be like, I don't want to be in charge. We've got to pick someone to be in charge. And then getting chosen anyway. Let's have an election. And, and inventing the whole idea of an election. Like, because that's his whole thing is inventing new ways to make something old work. Not that having an election and voting is a new idea because, like, in the round world, it goes back at least, like, 2,000 or more years, right? That people have been doing it for a long time. But modern modern stuff is different. And political parties, yeah. And who can vote is different. So, what- Red Shoe definitely has a party. <laughs> Does he have a party um, or is he, like, shuffling around the no, background? Um, he'd be like the Socialist Alliance. Like, he'd be super progressive, but he'd have quite reasonable policies, I feel. I mean, he'd be very, like, far out, far left wing. I'd vote for him probably, but <laughs> uh, but but he probably, I mean, he's always, he's such an idealist, Reg, and he's not necessarily very practical. So, I feel like he'd be one of those smaller, very left wing parties that has great ideals and a few good policy ideas, but no sort of practical backup for how they would implement those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Would Sybil- uh, I don't think Sybil would have a party, but she'd strongly back something. Yeah. Would she- I mean- Animal welfare party, like the dragon league. Is there an, is there an Emma's party? Oh. An Emma's party who's like a one-issue party about <laughs> swamp dragon safety? <laughs> I mean, if their thing is swamp dragon safety, I think she would actually back the Emma party. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think if it would be, like, do you elect a president and that's it? Or is there, like, a council for Hank Moorpork? It would be council And then there's, like, a mayor or something. Or a president. I like to think that they have a rotating leader situation. Oh. But I, yeah, mean, okay. I, I don't know why I think that. I just think maybe I'm just superimposing my 
perfect democracy, yeah. which is actually just like a. It's not. It's interesting. Well, it's interesting because it's a city state, right? So it combines elements of the kind of city council with federal politics. Like in Australian terms, it's like combining the top and and sort of lowest. I don't mean those in terms of importance, but like sort of in terms of geographical influence, like the biggest and smallest areas of government together without the middle that we have because we have state governments, Mm. which is which you don't really you don't for UK listeners. I know you don't have that. You do just have sort of local government and national government. There's not a level in between. There would need to be a leader, actually, I think, for Ankh-Morpork. Pork. They can't just, they wouldn't work on a thing. Because if they had a council, I reckon they'd be like, okay, we're all bickering, but let's just ask Carrot what he thinks unofficially. I feel like them being used to a patrician means they'd want like a president mm. style thing rather than a prime minister. They'd want to vote for the person they want to be the leader of the whole thing. So they might, but, but, it, but in this scenario that Carlos envisions, there has to be also representatives or there wouldn't be parties, right? You don't have. I mean, the president is a member of a party, but that's only because the parties exist because there's a Congress and a Senate, right? So, uh, we have, uh, sorry, again, politics lesson for non-Australian listeners. We, we have a Westminster system style government, uh, that works much the same as the English style. So you, you elect a representative from your local constituency, your local division, we call them. And whichever party has the most members in the House of Representatives is able to form a government. And the leader of that party becomes the prime minister of the country. And they can change that, change who the prime minister is, as is famously happened many times now in Australia, particularly in the last couple of decades. Anyway, again, not, that's not a political podcast, but I hope that's interesting to any of you who aren't here in Australia. I, I do want to just address Carl had a really good question too about this. Would there be a party that was the bring back the dictator party, which he thought was a bit similar to the ACT where they had the no self-government party. So this is mm-hmm. like a uh, like a territory, which is a small part of Australia. It's kind of like Washington, D.C. It's like the District of Columbia. It's the bit where the capital is, so it's sort of separated from the state around it so that it's more federal. Um, and they originally were just governed entirely by the federal government, and then they changed it uh, so that they had their own couple of senators who represented them and, and local representatives that had their own sort of local government. And there were some people like, no, that's ridiculous. We want to just be part of the federal government. And they ran a party, which was like the no self-government party. So I can imagine that. Who would want the patrician back? Because he's not very popular. I mean, he does a really good job, but nobody really likes him. I don't know. Like, I feel like if this came in, it would actually be like secretly veterinary has concocted all this to show that democracy doesn't work and just makes it all like... <laughs> chaos and so that people are more like okay we like things how they are but i mean if it is truly a he's gone situation um Mm. i don't think it'd be easy to bring him back by voting you'd Mm. only be able to bring him back by chaos Mm. yeah that would only work if like someone convinced him to run an election but he was still there i reckon there would be a party of the gods pretending to be people to see it like <laughs> as fun, like to see if they could get voted in by like <laughs> their followers and finding it's really disappointing because like because they're uh. not portraying themselves as actual gods, like cause they'd have to come in in a disguise, like the classic like coming down dressed as a human or like and seducing a person <laughs> without saying that you're a god. They're they're trying to do that, but through a political party, and so they've come up with some sort of the superhuman, non supernatural party of just like you. And try and get people to vote for them, and no one does, and all of their followers are disappointing to them. So mm. I reckon that could be quite a fun one. It's pretty good. I'm trying to think what the like the real political issues are in Ankh Morpork. 
Well, veterinary fixed it. Well, I mean, there's still issues, though, right? Not everything's fine. I feel like there'd have to be some sort of clax party, like a freedom of the clax, you know, like we have like a pirate party, which is about freedom of information and, and so on. I think there'd be like a claxes for everyone, free clax party or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe a no thieves guild party. Yeah. So people wouldn't like that. You have to pay like protection. Mm, people questioning if that's still a relevant way to run things. Yeah, anti-specific guild parties, I think, would be a, a thing. Mm. Like yep. anti-assassin party, which would mysteriously pull out before election day. <laughs> yes. I think one of the things that complicates this is because there aren't already political parties. The political parties would, I think, and Carl did sort of say, would it be like, you know, dwarves versus golems? Would it be uh, watchmen versus seamstresses? What would people promise that people have- I mean, I, I could see, like, in Ankh-Morpork fashion, the political promises would be off the scale. Like, people would be like, a free eclair to every baby. I've taken that from a song. But, you know, that's that would be the kind of thing. Like, they just promise anything. I'm gonna plan travel to Achuan himself for everyone. I, I reckon there would be, and I'm just riffing off something Carl put in the question, there would be a golem party. Around Earth or around Disco <laughs> Party? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, dear. Yeah. And they'd all have- to, I think they would do the Austra- very Australian thing of having quite deceptive names, like where it sounds quite reasonable, but it's not when you scratch the surface. But no, I agree with both you and Carl. There would probably be a golem party and it'd be very reasonable because their whole thing is like doing things by the rules. And then like if new rules come in, they're like, okay, so we'll do things the political way slowly and effectively. And we'll try and get a golem mm. into a position where he can say things um, and influence stuff. I think there'd be very quietly chipping away. That'd be a political issue. I reckon there'd be like some argument about whether or not golems would be allowed to run. I mean, I think they should. They're clearly actual people and as much as any human being is. But um, Surely there'd be like an independent running being like, is it cool that the same guy runs the mint in the post office? <laughs> the the less power for moist von Lipwig party. <laughs> um, supported by Adorabelle Deerheart. <laughs> no, she's, she's with the golems. Do you think Harry King would run for office? This is my question. No, I think Har- he, not initially. So I think basically with this, right. depending on how mm. long it lasted, first year of elections would be chaotic scrum free for all where there's just so many parties because the issues are still, everything's still a bit tidy from when we had mm-hmm. veterinary. So everyone would just be like, what do I care about? All right, I'll start a party and we'll do that. And then things settle and change over the next few years and then it'd distill down into issues, distill down into issues. Harry King, I think, would bide his time. He'd throw money in the directions that he thinks are useful for the first few mm. years of democracy. And it would take a little while. Then he'd be like, and now I run. Mm. But he wouldn't yeah. be in there He'd from the be beginning. Like, he's an interesting figure because I feel like, uh, and if you lost here, listeners, Harry King appears mostly in The Truth, but pops up in a few other books too. And he's he's the king of the trash, basically. He runs the garbage collection and recycling business in, in Nagmorebourg. And he's got lots of money because it's there's a lot of money in that. I feel like he'd be like- He's a kingmaker. Yeah, totally. But also he's quite benevolent. Like I feel like like he's a he's he's got a heavy hand, but I think his heart is in the right place. And I can imagine him wanting to make the world better for his daughters to grow up in because that's like his driving motivation. Mm. And so maybe he'd be, you know, if there was a climate change equivalent disaster coming to the disc, he'd be like, No, we're gonna do something about this. Yeah. 
But I think yeah. later, like I think he'd be more like, here's some money for this cause. Here's what I think should go through. And I think he'd only want to get in power if, like you say, there's a specific thing. Might be like, I mean, this is not the same because I have reservations about this individual, but there's a, a very wealthy guy, Simon Holmes at court. I think that's his name in Australia, yes. who was quite conservative, but wants action on climate change. And that led him into conflict with the Liberal National Party, which is our current Conservative Party-led government. And so, he has thrown a lot of his personal money at all these independent candidates running against Liberal Party members in various seats. And I think that's kind of what Harry would do, but he's not horribly conservative, I don't think. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think he'd be benevolent, strangely powerful for us. Yeah. Oh, what a cool- <laughs> What a cool question. <laughs> I could think, like, amazing book this would make. Like, yeah. it, I think it'd have to be so that my heart didn't um, break an alternative reality set one, like one where it's like, what if, um, where a veterinary isn't actually gone, but like, oh, just like when they briefly like go into the multiverse, because that's kind of the thing at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. They're in an Ankh-Morp where Drumnot has done this and we're seeing it, but then it snaps back to the proper timeline. There could be fan fiction about this already out there somewhere. I and if there isn't, there should be. I want to find it. Uh, maybe we should write it. Uh, but uh, I do just also want to say, we'll put a note about this in the show notes, that Carl also said for inspiration, we could have looked at the 1989 ACT election, which was the first one they had after they had their own government, where there are some really out there political parties, including the Sun Ripen Tomato Party and the Party Party Party. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, great stuff. Really, really weird politics there. Like, um, that's what I was saying. Chaotic energy for the first one. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's where it would go. Thank you, Carl, for w- such a great question. This, I think I'm going to be buoyed by this for the rest of the day, no matter what the outcome of the election is. <laughs> Thank you for sending mm. that. Don't worry, past me and past Liz, you don't know this, but we changed the government at the election. We just want to finish up. We want to do a shout out to another subscriber who is at this level, has not sent us a question. So, Soren, thank you for your support at the Eek tier. We'll find a question from you and we will put it into a nuke club or something. But thank you so much for supporting us. We appreciate you. We do. And we appreciate all of our subscribers, but especially those of you who supported us at this level and sending questions for this special episode. So, thank you, Graham, Frank, Kath and Eddie, Steph, uh, Jess and Ellie. Carl and Soren, thank you, all of you, for making not just this special episode, but all of Pratchat possible, along with all of our other subscribers and supporters. Thank you so, so much. Liz, is there- what do we- how do we want to- we, it's, it's, it's weird, this is such a different episode that we don't really have the normal structure. If you listen to the regular flow of the episodes, you already know what's coming up next, which is the short story, If Def Debug Plus World Slash Enough Plus Time. Um- uh- I just want to quickly tell you, actually, um, your your little speech at the end of all of our episodes, like music by Sample and Holt, has stuck in my head so subconsciously <laughs> that I was finishing a conversation for something else and that didn't happen and my brain started just playing it. <laughs> oh, no. I- <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. I love it. But I was just so taken aback because like, if you asked me to sit down and recite it to you, I couldn't. But my brain just was like, I finished talking on a recorded thing and now this is what is said. I don't know how to sign off this one. I really enjoy doing eat clubs. Uh, I enjoy every episode, but it's good to be able to take what we get from our rereads and from our knowledge of just all of the books and 
funneled them in a different way to look at the characters, mm. look at the stories, look at the context in a way that we wouldn't be able to come up with on our on our own. Absolutely. And it's nice. Uh, it's just always nice when we get questions as well. I mean, one of the reasons that we make the podcast the way that we do is so that we can have that interaction with you, the listener, uh, whether you're sending in questions for a specific episode or for a special one like this as a subscriber. And I'll be candid with you. It makes the podcast a lot harder to produce <laughs> because we can't do things in advance. We have to wait until we are announcing the book and you've had a chance to read it and send us questions. And it means that we can't do multiple episodes in a row. We have to do them one at a time all the time. So it's more complicated, but it's so much more rewarding. And uh, that's because of you and the things that you send us. So please continue to send in questions. So that next short story that you've got an opportunity to ask us about is If Def Debug plus World Slash Enough plus Time. Uh, and after that, we're reading the next Long Earth book, which is The Long Mars. Uh, that'll be in July. It is long. It is long. Um, Have you started it yet? No. (laughs) No, but you're a fast reader, Liz. You always read things quite uh, at the last minute because you read a lot, right? Yes, but, um, you know, it's you come up with strategies and they're all very inelegant um, where you, like, have it. Like, you should see it sometimes. There's, like, I set a timer and a number of pages that I should have achieved by the time the alarm goes off and it's extremely relaxing, as you can imagine. Yes, (laughs) I can imagine. What a chill way to read. Uh, It's only if it's on a really tight deadline. I'm going to start soon. I understand. I'm not going to start no, at like fine. 6 a.m. on the morning of the recording. <laughs> that will not work out. It's very long. <laughs> it's very long. Uh, but yes, looking forward to that. What if I read 200 pages of 15 minutes? That's fine. <laughs> if you have any general questions, though, uh, remember, if you're a subscriber, you can send them in to us at any time for the Oot Club, our subscriber-only bonus podcast. There is another episode of that coming soon. It's just been a hectic time. It's been difficult to find the time to edit it. And if you're not a subscriber and you have a general question, you will have a chance to send them in for Pratchett 60. We will remind you when that gets a bit closer. But if you have one now that you want to send in while you think of it, send it in. We'll stick it in the list. General questions are fine. Major questions are fine. Private questions are fine. And so are sergeant questions. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. On that note, I think <laughs> we should go. Thank you so much for listening to this Eat Club 2022 special. And we'll see you in the future. Thank you for listening to Eat Club. I'm doing my best Ben impression and I do not know what he says after this, but I do know that we very much appreciate you being here and thank you for listening. We'll be back in another year with another Eat Club. Please keep the questions coming. Thank you very much. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.